0: If you have a copy of God's Word, find Genesis chapter 12. And let me tell you how encouraging it is to sing together. In fact, if you if you ever are interested in doing a study, I'd encourage you if you if you're reading through the gospels at any point to do a study of the times that Jesus sang. It's so very interesting that he often sang in his times of greatest trial his times of greatest temptation, and any time that you would see Jesus you know, quote a psalm in the wilderness, you got to remember that he would have known that because he sang it as a child. And so this isn't just something that we do. Yes, we do it to give praise to God. We do it to fill our hearts with joy. But it's actually something we do so that we can better wage war against sin in our own life. This is something that we're not just singing, yes, to God. We are doing that, but we're also singing to one another, which is incredible to think that we're a family encouraging one another, a body doing work together. Here in Genesis chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 10. Here's what the Word of God says. Now, there was a famine in the land, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, she, and for her sake, he dealt with Abram, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with, a great, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, Why, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I would take her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of God. One of the primary mistakes we make when we study the Bible is we often just think it's a bunch of random stories just sort of thrown together. And I think many of us growing up in church or even being in church our whole life, the Bible so often taught that way. And yet the Bible is ultimately one story with one divine author Who carries readers along through inspired human authors? In fact, the story of the Bible is meant to be the story we find ourselves in. Everybody finds themselves in some grand story, some grand uh, place to belong in the world. And the Bible's story is one of creation, fall, redemption. And recreation, and that's meant to define how we look at the world and how we think about our own place in the grand story of creation. And since the Bible is one grand story, it shouldn't surprise us when we begin to see things that look familiar. Both that cause us to look back at something we already read, and something that, that causes us to look forward and sets the stage for things to come. And Genesis twelve ten to twenty is one of those passages. It calls us to look back in many ways to the fall of man and to Adam in the garden. But it also has us look forward to the exodus of Israel. And it takes us to the rear view of Adam and into the the windshield of Moses. And we see this central point. You'll see this in your notes. The central point this morning is that God is unbelievably faithful to his faithless people. God is unbelievably faithful to his faithless people. And I think the most striking thing about verses 10 to 20 is that they come right after verses 1 to 9. If you remember last week, Abraham was shown in verses 1 to 9 as being a man of incredible faith. He believed God's word. He picked up all that he had and he moved to a place that God didn't even tell him where he was going. And he obeyed God's command. He went out and trusted that God would show him where to go. And yet, in verses 10 to 20, we see not a man of faith, but a man of unbelief. He's no longer obeying But failing, and I don't think this is meant to imply that somehow Abraham or Abram completely walked away from the faith or left God completely behind. But rather, what happened to Abraham is exactly what happens to us so often. None of us have a perfect faith. We're we're finite and failing and fallen so often. And it can express itself sometimes in even flagrant unbelief and flagrant open sin and in this passage we should see that the faithlessness of Abraham just leaps off the page. And in particular in three ways. First we should notice Abraham's unbelief about the land. Unbelief about the land. Notice how the text opens verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham, so Abram Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe. In the land. Now, notice that Moses, who was writing this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to highlight for us just how bad the famine was. He talks about the famine twice in the verse, and then he concludes by going, "The famine was severe in the land." We need to notice this was a this was a bad situation that Abraham finds himself in. But then we need to notice Abraham's action. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now. We don't have to be Bible scholars to ask ourselves, what was a Hebrew doing in Egypt? That never goes well, does it? If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, certainly Moses, who had led the people out of Egypt, who was writing this down, would have, would have wanted to cue us in on something. Now... Abraham likely thought he was making a wise decision at the time. See, many of us, we think about Egypt and we think about nothing but desert everywhere. But the Nile River, which, was, which is right in the center of Egypt, is actually an incredibly fertile place. And it often was, was impervious to famines because the river would flood so often. It was prime Agricultural land, much like in many ways Western Kentucky is, particularly right along the Ohio River where I'm from. The river floods so often that the land is just soaking and great, and we have the lakes here. Egypt was so much of a fertile land that in the midst of this famine, it must have looked like the land of promise. And so we have to understand that this appeared to be such a wise decision for Abraham. This appeared to be a no brainer, yet. It might have been a decision made in Abraham's wisdom, but it was not a decision made in faith. Abraham had, been, had received a word from God, hadn't he? God had spoken to him, and look at what we saw last week, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. God had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And there he was promised a land, wasn't he? He was promised to be made a great nation, we see there in verse 2. And rather than staying in the land God had promised him to be in, he left and went south to Egypt. He tried to find God's hope and promise and protection somewhere other than God said he should be. He, he was, and, and it shouldn't surprise us that when Abraham was outside of where and what God has said, that his life began to have trouble. And see, many of us are in the same boat. We're walking in things, sexual sin, pornography, covetousness, bitterness, anger, whatever it is, and then we wonder why our life is in everything God has promised it to be. Friends, you can't expect the peace of heaven if you're going to vacation in hell. Friends, you can't expect to to leave the place that God wants you to be and somehow experience things he promised you to have. God promised Abram a land, but he tries to find peace in another land. We see Abram's unbelief about the land. But notice, second, his unbelief about his wife. His unbelief about his wife. Abram gets himself in a mess. Look at verse 11. Look at this. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, then it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Notice a few things. First, ladies, notice how he opens with a compliment. Men, you know you do this. You know you do this. He's about to ask something wild of her, so he butters her up first, doesn't he? Hey, Sarah, you're such a beautiful woman. And he says, says, hey, babe, could you say that you're my sister so they don't kill me? What a wild situation to be in. And now, I'll say Abraham's concern was partially valid. This sort of thing, the Egyptians killing men and taking their wives, and the wives would join the court. Of the king was actually a very common thing in the ancient world. This was something Abraham actually should have been concerned about. But Abram also, I think, would have been able to justify this lie in his mind, one, because he was trying to save his own life, but there was actually a shred of truth to what he was saying. See, what's funny is, as we read through the book of Genesis, you'll see that Abraham and his sons get in the same sort of situation over and over and over again. This actually happens again with a, with a ruler named Abimelech in at, at Genesis chapter 20. And there we learn that there's actually a shred of truth to Abraham's favorite lie. Here's what he says. This is Genesis 20, verse 12. He says to Abimelech, besides, she, being Sarah, is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, This is striking, isn't it? This is probably even shocking to many of us to hear this. That Abraham was in fact married to his half-sister, the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. And this likely strikes you as icky. And let me tell you, it it should strike you as icky. This isn't a text that, that I think would encourage this activity. And if you think that's icky, friends, Genesis is just getting started. The next few chapters of Genesis should probably be rated PG-13 for many of the things that are going to occur. But these are a few, there are a few things here we should note. The Bible doesn't commend to us Abraham's action, but it does recognize it. The Bible's honesty here is incredible. This is what's called a descriptive text, describing something that happened rather than a prescriptive text telling us what to do. And so often, people mess up when they read the Bible because they begin to inflate the two. They go, well, look, Abraham married his half-sister, therefore I should marry my half-sister. No, that's not what this text is telling you to do. Be careful of conflating script texts that describe something that happened with texts that actually prescribe or tell you what to do. In fact, later Levitical law actually condemns this sort of relationship. Second, there were often these sort of marital adoptions that would happen where if a if a family member's spouse died or abandoned them the nearest single brother or kinsman would marry them in a sort of marital adoption in order to provide for them. I think this is potentially what happened with Sarah as they were in their she was in her 60s when some of this began. To occur, and this actually isn't just an ancient concept. Let me give you an interesting thing I read. I read recently that one of the last widows of the Civil War veterans died in 2018 at over a hundred years old. And you think, how does that work? Well, when she was 17, she entered into a legal marriage with a 93-year-old veteran. And this was done so that she could claim he was offering her his Civil War pension for her to have a good life and continue on forward. And what was interesting in the story is though she was married to this man, she never claimed the pension. And so people can marry for all kinds of reasons, but that doesn't encourage us to model that or to do that in our own life. And third, it was also common in the ancient world that families would would marry with distant but still semi-close kin in order to preserve their own bloodlines and inheritances. Now, again, nothing here is commending this to us in a positive way, but I think the incredible thing is that the Bible is honest about life in a fallen world, particularly life in a fallen ancient world. So Abraham is buttering up his wife. He's technically only telling a half-truth which is a side note, a half-truth is a whole lie, right? But he's like, oh, this is only half, half half-untrue. And then we need to notice he does this for selfish motives. Look what he says. This is uh, chapter 12, verse 13. He says, Say you are my sister, that it may go well because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abraham wants to save his own head. He puts his wife in danger because just by being his sister wasn't going to keep her from being taken by Pharaoh. But it was going to save his own head. Abraham, ladies, is like if you were to ever hear a bump in the night and roll over and go, Hey, babe, could you go check out what that was? Abraham's under the bed, hiding, holding the gun, going, You get it, babe. I'm not going to get it. That's what Abraham is doing here. And what incredible unbelief, because God had promised him an offspring of promise through this barren woman, right? We saw last week God had promised that a nation was going to come through him and Sarah, but he was willing to give his wife to the Egyptians rather than trust God's word. He exchanged a promised family for temporary security. We see his unbelief about the land, his unbelief about his wife, and now finally, his unbelief about the blessing his unbelief about the blessing. Remember last week we saw how the promise of Abraham in Genesis 12 was meant to point by point confront the curse we see in Genesis chapter 3. And yet throughout this passage, it appears that the curse is winning. Let me have you see this. Let me have you see this. One thing that's so interesting about this text is you don't hear anything from Sarah. Sarah doesn't really speak at all. And many commentators think this means, and I think it's probably right that Abraham was likely domineering during this whole situation. Genesis 2 tells us that man was created by God to guard and to cultivate, to protect and to pour into their wives rather than to deflect and domineer over them and this whole passage should make us think about Adam and his own wife. Cuz friends, Adam should have guarded and kept his wife from the snake. And yet he lets the snake go right up to her and talk to her. So Abraham should have been a man and kept his family out of Egypt and certainly not sold her into the, the Pharaoh's court. And reminders of the fall of Adam are all over this passage. Particularly, consider just the way we see the curse at work here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 is part of the curse. And look what it says. To the woman, God said... I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Sarah, of course, was barren, so she had this sort of pain in childbearing. She was unable to do so. But the second half of the curse says that one of the things that sin's curse on the world has done is it makes marriage hard. Hear me, married couples? Marriage is hard, isn't it? Spouses will have contrary desires to one another. This idea of, 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 a, of him ruling over her isn't a positive thing. This is saying, hey, men will be tempted to domineer and to abuse and to abdicate their responsibility and to do harm rather than do good. This is one of the things that sin corrupts. Men, hear me, sin makes you naturally tempted to be like Abraham. Abraham. Sin makes you, want, makes you naturally be like Abraham. Being a bad husband is easy. Being a godly husband is a lot of work. And Abraham is learning that here. We see the curse of sin and the fact that there was a famine. There was a famine. Genesis three seventeen says this, right in the same context. And to Abraham, God said... Because you listen to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse means that the ground is difficult to work. It means that, men, you sweat and work is hard because sin has so infected the created world. There's thorns and thistles and sweat and work and even famines and bad crops. And we see also the curse over this passage in that we see Genesis 3.15. We see the devil at work here. Look at Genesis 3.15. Look at this. I will put enmity, this is speaking to Satan, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Consider this, there's a wicked Pharaoh and Abraham's wife, who's the wife of of promise. And we see enmity and hatred and warfare here. She's getting sold right into his court. She goes right into where the snake is. Genesis 3.15 is an ongoing battle between the offspring of promise and the offspring of the serpent. This is what the whole Bible is sort of opening up for us. And certainly in the mind of Moses, and certainly in the Holy Spirit that was inspiring him, the offspring of the snake was the oppressive Egyptians who enslaved God's people. Didn't just enslave Sarah, but also enslaved the Egyptians later on. And, and, and they were this sort of snake that's warring and raging between, between them and Abraham. Consider throughout the Bible, oppressive kings and governments and even pharaohs are often pictured as snakes and dragons. You'll see it throughout the Bible if you ever look and do a study on that. And that means even by speaking to this pharaoh, God, Abraham was coming face to face with the snake. Just as adam did and he's abdicates his responsibility i'm going to sell my wife right on into slavery rather than stand firm he fell to the temptation look at verse chapter 12 verse 14 back in our passage when abraham entered egypt the egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of pharaoh saw her they praised her to pharaoh And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Abraham didn't just think this scheme up. He actually goes through with it. He exchanges God's promised blessing for earthly material blessings. He doesn't just sell his wife and he gets the lottery back in return. Friends, he gets gets all of these goods for selling his wife to Pharaoh. Remember what Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 promised. God promised to Abraham that I would bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth should be blessed. Oh, had Abraham believed God's promise here. God promised that if anyone dishonors you or comes against you, I will curse them. I will take care of them. Oh that, God, oh, that Abraham had believed that God would take care of any obstacle in his way. Oh, that Abraham had believed that God would keep his promises. Oh, that Abraham had not tried to earn God's blessing by his work and his effort and his own wisdom, but rather had he just walked by faith. And friends, he gets richly rewarded for his wife going into the harem. And let me remind you again, there is a level of prosperity Worldly prosperity and perceived blessing that sin can get you. Satan, when he is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, says, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. I can get you all sorts of stuff if you will just cave to this one sin. And he can even lead you to trade all of God's promises for some sheep and some camels. And yet, see not simply the faithfulness of Abraham, but see, or the faithlessness of Abraham, but see the faithfulness of God. See the faithfulness of God, because God is unbelievably faithful to his faithless people. What happens next is incredible, because God is still faithful to save Abraham even after he blows it. God still keeps his promise to curse those who, who dishonor him. And look what happens. God saves Abraham through an exodus from Egypt. God saves Abraham through an exodus from Egypt. Look at verse 17. Look at this. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done? Why did you not tell me that she was your sister? Why did, you say she, why, why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning her, and they sent her away with his wife and all that he had. Oh, how the exodus from Israel should be ringing in our ears. God sent a plague upon a pharaoh, and he said, go, leave, get out of here. And the people of God would be set free. And it even says Abraham got to take all of his stuff too. Fantastic. And in chapter 13, we see that he went up out of Egypt. God's prisoner set free, his people protected not by his own wisdom and might, but by God's intervention. Abraham's exodus and even the exodus of Israel are meant to be pictures, paradigms, illustrations of how God saves us. In fact, I think many of us come to the Old Testament with a misunderstanding. We come to the Old Testament and you'll say, hey, that's great, but that isn't for me. We tend to say, well, the Old Testament's, the old Testament's great, but, but that's old news for somebody else. And yet the Bible would tell us that this is good news for us. One of the most important verses, it's there as your memory verse for the week, 1 Corinthians ten eleven says this. If you look in the context... The, the Old Testament happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. When we go to the Old Testament, we've got to ask ourselves, how is this an example to me? What is here in this for my instruction and my encouragement? Let me offer three ways that Abraham's Exodus instructs us as we look at it. First, Abraham's exodus instructs us about our salvation. Abraham's exodus instructs us about our salvation. Anyone who is saved from their sin is saved just as Abraham was. And no, friends, the the point of the exodus isn't that God will part the Red Seas of your life. No, the gospel presents news far better than you getting to overcome worldly obstacles through Jesus who is a better Abraham and a better Moses, God takes his people out of slavery to sin into a promised land of grace. Friends, there are so many verses that echo this throughout the Bible. Just think, any time the Bible uses the word redeem, it's using the language of the Passover. It's using the language of, of what the people of God would celebrate when they were exodus out of, of Egypt. And consider the Bible also speaks of us being delivered from the kingdoms of darkness and to, brought to dwell in the kingdom of God. And the Bible speaks of being brought from death to life. All of these find their roots in the Exodus. They all converge in places like Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, which says this, he... Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see it there? In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation are delivered from darkness, transferred from death to life, and redeemed, bought, and owned by Jesus. Sins forgiven, darkness defeated, hearts transformed. This is the good news of the exodus, that through Jesus, God can bring us on an exodus out of our sin. This passage instructs us about our salvation. But second, Abraham's exodus instructs us in our assurance. In our assurance. Let me tell you. All of us have blown it, or you will blow it, just like Abraham did. You may not sell your wife to a pharaoh, but you will blow it in some way. In fact, we, all of us sin for doing what Abraham ultimately did. All of us exchange the truth of God for a lie, and that's why we sin. We disbelieve God's promises And so we act out of our false belief. Some of us feel that we've blown it so bad that God could never take us back. And the good news of this passage is that God is far more faithful than you have ever been faithless. That God is faithful even when we are finite and fickle and failing. See that God remained faithful to Abraham even in the midst of his unbelief. And one commentator I read this week noted noted that this was likely one of the events that led Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to use Abraham as both an example of a man of faith, incredible faith, and a man of sin, particularly incredible sin. In fact, on the heels of speaking about how Abraham was reconciled to God through faith and not works, Paul says this, this is Romans 4. Romans 4 verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Hear me. The only kind of person God saves is an ungodly one. The only kind of sinner there is is a big one. Let me tell you, you walked in here today and you might think that you're a small sinner. No, friends, everybody in this room, myself included, are big sinners. And God displays huge grace to huge sinners. Friends, whether it's Abraham or it's David or it's you, God saves ungodly people. But it begins by admitting that we're far worse than we have ever imagined and that God is far more merciful than we can begin to fathom. Though Abraham fell, God invited him to come home. And today, whoever you are, whatever you've done, God invites you to come home. To turn from trusting in your sin and yourself, and to turn and trust again in the promise of God found in Jesus. Let me tell you this, one of the Puritans, I love the old dead guys, like the Puritans, right? And they said this, they said, there is far more grace in God than sin in you. And that's such good news. This passage should instruct us in our assurance. To those of you who have failed and fallen, turn to God and you'll find him to be gracious and ready to receive you. Just like the prodigal son who comes home, his father was already running out the door when he saw him at the end of the road. God will meet you in your mess. And finally, Abraham's exodus instructs us about our sanctification. Now look at that. Hang that up there for a second so we can... Type, write that word out, because I know that that's a churchy word. It's a very churchy word, isn't it? But it's a very important word, sanctification. It just simply means the process of being made more holy. You'll see that sort of, if something, it, that sancti part, that means holy. And then, fication talks about the process of, the process of being more like Jesus. Your growth in faith, and your growth in Jesus' own Likeness And hear me, I think many churches have done a great job of getting believers saved, but not necessarily the best job of teaching us how to grow. And so many, and again, we should think rightly about getting people saved. Don't, don't mishear me. But we shouldn't just leave them as a baby Christian once they get there. And so we look at passages like Genesis 12, 10 to 20, all of us must ask ourselves, how does this help me grow to be more like Jesus? And 1 Corinthians 10 actually offers us some encouragement in this way. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13, right after he tells us that the Old Testament is written for our instruction, he says this, therefore, let anyone that's that, that thinks he that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but also but he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see the warning from Abraham's life here. He says, hey, one of the lessons of the old testament is that one, none of us are too good to fall And so that's a warning to us that we need to be pursuing after God and not relying on ourselves. But it also says, hey, that temptation comes your way. It's not something that's simply unique to you. And that there are situations that God gets you in where he had provided an escape and you may have never even seen it. See the warning from the life of Abraham. Before he ever was put in the situation to feel he needed to lie and sell his wife, he went to Egypt. Before he was ever, you think, why would God ever put me in this situation? Why did you go to Egypt? Some of us complain about temptation, and yet we're camped out far from where we know we should be. We show up to spots where we know temptation will be, and then we try to fight it when, friends, you shouldn't even be on the battlefield. Some of us have gotten taught that holiness is gotten simply by praying when temptation comes. And hear me, yes, you need to pray, pray, pray. But hear me, Jesus said that sin isn't simply dealt with by prayer, but it's dealt with by decisive, faith-filled action. It is only handled by war. Let me show you this. This is unpopular Jesus here. Our culture doesn't like what Jesus says here. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Look at this. You're not going to see this on on a Jesus bumper sticker. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Hear me. Holiness is only gotten... Growth in your faith is only achieved through faith filled, Holy Spirit empowered effort. Through being willing to cut off what might kill you in order to have life that will never die. And Abraham's first problem wasn't the conundrum with Pharaoh, it was the unbelief in the promise of God and leaving where God told him to stay. Friends, are there situations in your life that you're in right now because you went to Egypt? You went where you knew you shouldn't have, and you went in your own wisdom and power, going, no, I can handle this. I got this. I can go and go to this place where I know my, my temptations are going to be, and I got the power to do this. I'm smart enough. I know what I'm going to do. And we don't have any consideration or consulting for God and his word. Friends, we walk by faith, not by wisdom, not by our own might, but by the Spirit. Friends, how many of us find ourselves like Abraham, trying to live not by faith and reliance on God, but in our own power and might and wisdom? Let your pastor speak honestly with you. You are not as smart as you think you are. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. You are not as smart as you think you are. You often don't know what is best and right and good for you. And so God would call you to his word to stop relying on your own works to save yourself, but to let God and God alone rescue you. And see this, God is faithful even to you. In the midst of your fallen and faithlessness, God will meet you where you are. To those of you who are struggling today, come to Jesus. To those who are hurting today, come to the healer. To those living in the midst of Egypt, God has made a way out through Jesus, his son. Friends, I will be here after the service, after the benediction. If anyone needs prayer or counsel, please come speak with me or whoever brought you or whoever you would talk to today. But may we never build our eternal hope, assurance, and growth on the sands of our own works. But rather, may we cling to the foundation of God's promises. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you are good and that you show faithfulness to generation after generation, even as we are fallen and finite. Lord, I pray today that anyone within the sound of my voice, Lord, that you would be working in their heart to draw them to yourself. That you'd be doing what only you can do by your Spirit through the Word to convict them and to see their need to come out of Egypt and to see that you will meet them and satisfy. The, the, the deepest needs of their heart, if they would pursue you and they would find you to be their all in all. I pray that you would do, again, the work that only you can do in drawing people to yourself. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Let's stand and sing the victory that we have in Christ. <laughs> falls it won't prevail cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph my God will never fail no my God will never fail I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory for the bad Yes, I know how this story ends. Yes, I know how this story ends. Let's sing together. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. evil, and you turn it for good, you turn it for good. For the battle belongs to you,
0: Lord. We close our service with a benediction. Paul's own words as he was facing his death in 2nd. Timothy chapter four, he said this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me and he will rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.